You're listening to The Loyalty Minute, the show that helps you build better customer loyalty and more valuable user engagement with your host, Rob Gallo. Welcome, loyal listeners, to another episode of The Loyalty Minute. I'm your host, Rob Gallo, and today I'm super eager and excited to chat with Phil Rubin. Phil founded Our Dialogue in 2006 and merged with Bond Brand Loyalty in February of this year, and now is the Executive Vice President of Strategic Partnerships there. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Rob. Great to be here with you. So for those loyal listeners out there who don't know who you are, your background, perhaps you could share a bit about your story uh, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. Thanks. It's, uh, you know, growing up, I was always sort of obsessed with the customer experience and was always analyzing it and was very critical. Um, so, so if I think all the way back, that, that probably has something to do with it. But ultimately, it was flying to Chicago. I'd finished up, uh, I was finishing up getting my MBA at Tulane in New Orleans, where I grew up, and was flying to Chicago to, inter- to, to interview with Leo Burnett. And this is 1989. And at that time, Leo Burnett was one of the best companies to work for in the U.S., I had a finance degree and an MBA, and I had shifted my interest over to marketing. And my grandparents lived in downtown Chicago. And if I flew into Midway Airport, they would pick me up. If I flew into O'Hare, I was on my own because of, of the schlep from downtown out to O'Hare even back then, even before traffic was what it was up until COVID. And, I, I, and so I flew Midway Airlines into Midway Airport, and it's, it was just... I, I fell in love with the experience and the service culture that Midway had. They were the first airline to start up after deregulation. And as it turned out, I didn't get hired by Burnett, but I wrote a letter to John Take, who was the head of marketing and planning at Midway. Most recently, he was CEO at Hertz, rental car. He was president of United before that, after Midway. But uh John took a chance, and this was in 1989. It was it was you know the first decade of modern loyalty marketing and loyalty programs that really started with with Texas Air and and uh, and American Airlines in '79 and '81. So I had an MBA. I had you know the experience of going through Macy's executive training program. Knew nothing about the airline industry other than having been a passenger. First, my first day on the job, had a pile of folders left on my desk that were basically our partnership agreements and looked at the program and had the opportunity to redesign the program into something that Randy Peterson said that was, was quite possibly the best frequent flyer program of the year. And, uh, you know, here I am more than 30 years later, still doing it and still loving it. So very fortunate to have uh, kind of stumbled into it. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah, that's that's definitely an interesting uh, story, how things kind of just molded into something completely different from what you were expecting, right? But at least you were looking for something anyway, and then it, it, it the light bulb went off. So what I usually, as I ask the first question, is what does loyalty mean to you as a consumer, Phil? Well, I mean, everything loyalty means to me as a consumer is certainly manifest has man- been manifest through 
channeled back into the work that we do and and sort of an intellectual curiosity in terms of what drives that. But ultimately, you know, loyalty is about relationships and trust and who who pays attention to you and shows an interest to you that you find interesting and engaging. And and that's, it, it, you know, so the, the notion of loyalty really, number one, it is emotional. But as a consumer, I really think about, you know, if I walk into a store, I go to a restaurant or I get on a plane or show up at a hotel or, or you know, buying something on my phone, do I feel like the brand is interested in me as a customer? Do they value me as a customer? And, and is it a good experience? And, and, you know, of course, having been doing this for a long time, but also just sort of being by nature a dissatisfied customer, knowing sort of what the art of the possible means, um, you tend to really bring that to, you know, that sort of critical analysis to to a lot of things, both personal and and professional. So so it's 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 really important. And you you know you 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 as a consumer, but just as a person, you you think about loyalty, either consciously or unconsciously, a lot, and you act on it again, consciously or unconsciously, as you relate to people. And and of course, what brands you do business with, and and what your experiences are, and how they're met and how they're not met. And, and ultimately when they're not met, does the brand seem to, to care enough to either acknowledge it, if not fix it? Mm. So, so as an example, what would be a, a brand or a company that you're loyal to and why? And if you could think of it in like a, a, of a sort of a story, like you, you know, you, the one about Midway, it made sense because it kind of resonates and you're like, Oh yeah, that that's why. So, well, I mean, certainly travel is is an easy category to think about and apply that to, right? Because all kind you can have all kinds of different experiences, and typically there are, especially with air travel, there are all kinds of opportunities for for it to go awry, right? And and there's such a such a problem to be solved related to customer anonymity, right? Like we know our value to the brands that we do business with and they don't often acknowledge it back to you. So two quick examples. I think this was three years ago, four years ago was last business trip of the year. It was like literally this week, you know, today, whatever today is December 17th was like one of the last sort of business days of the year. And I did a day trip to New York. I'm based in Atlanta and I flew up in the morning and I flew back that evening from New York, knowing that at this point I was done with, with sort of work and business travel for the year. And I knew I was getting close to hitting 2 million miles on Delta. And sure enough, we landed Hartsfield Airport and I'd gotten upgraded um, because I fly with them so much and we've done business with them. So, so I'm fiercely loyal to them anyway. But what they did, um, as I deplaned, there's, a, there's an agent standing there with a sign that was printed out, you know, like not quite on a dot matrix printer, but it was like a black and it was a monochrome, you know, black and white print that said, uh, you know, Phil Rubin, uh, two million miler, you know, thank you. Wow. And she, it wasn't just the sign, you know, I got the treatment where they, 
you walk down the jetway to the tarmac, get in a Porsche, and they drive you to your car. And so, you know, that, that, that demonstration by Delta of recognizing that milestone and, and giving me that experience to sort of end my year of business travel, and, and it was clearly improvised by, you know, the nature of this black and white printout sheet was really cool. The other, and this is a, this is a quicker story, but um, we did business with Kimpton Hotels for 10 years until they got bought by IHG. So I'm flying out to San Francisco for a meeting with Kimpton in the morning, and I had to fly out there late at night. And I get there like probably 10, 30, 11 o'clock California time. I'm on East Coast time. So it's like one o'clock in the morning. I show up at the Hotel Palomar, Market Street and 4th in San Francisco. I, I walk up to uh, to the to the guest reception desk, uh, tell them my name, and like all at this point, all I want to do is like go upstairs, get in bed, and go to sleep, right? And the agent looks looks at me and says, "Mr. Rubin, welcome back. This is your ninth stay with us at the hotel." And again, it was like it was just the gesture and the recognition of, "Hey, you're you're a valuable customer," and that just starts to reinforce. And ultimately, ultimately cultivate loyalty. Um, you know, we were another real little aside story related to Kimpton. Many years before I started our dialogue, probably three or four years before I started our dialogue, I was meeting some guys actually in Chicago because we were thinking about forming a, a new business or a new venture. And um, I happened to stay for the very first time at a Kimpton. I stayed at the, the, the Hotel Monaco. Um, Wabash and uh, the river in Chicago. I'd never stayed at a Kimpton hotel before, but kind of like the experience I had at Midway, I walked in there and was just blown away by the experience. Now, interestingly, like the Midway thing, the Kimpton thing had nothing to do with loyalty programs. It had to do with the experience and just the interaction with the people and the service culture. And I thought to myself at the time, like, man, I would love to work with this, this brand one of these days. And then you know, through a series of four, very fortunate events, the first year we started our dialogue, I got it. We got introduced to Kimpton and began a ten-year relationship. So it's it's just sort of strange how things work and and sort of the karma of it all, which ironically and not coincidentally was what we called the new the, the new and improved uh, version of what was called Kimpton and Touch. That after working with them for like eight years, we relaunched it as, as helped them help them to design and relaunch as as karma. So, um, yeah, just again, like really fortunate to get to do this kind of work. And so speaking of our, our dialogue, so now our dialogue you said was, uh, merged with, uh, bond on brand loyalty. Yes. So does it still have Kimpton or now IHG as a client? No, we we our, our business with 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 Kimpton continued a little bit after the acquisition by IHG, but then ultimately, uh, no, we uh, that relationship ended with IHG. Hmm. So it's, before it's I, sorry, go ahead. No, no. Before I go on to other questions, I wanted to get some background on our dialogue because I'm not really familiar with it and what it was and now what it is what's doing now. Thanks. Um, so our dialogues. Uh, stands for, stood for um, relevant dialogue, which uh, was really a recognition that, 
you know, again, kind of going back to what I learned early in my career running a frequent flyer program was the program's one thing, but the real value of the program is the data that you get and the ability to, to, to deliver relevant communications to customers to build the relationship and ultimately get them to do more business with you or do less business with others and whatever, however that, that works out. Um, I had an opportunity. I, I joined a firm that wanted to get into the loyalty space in 2003, worked with them for three years, built a loyalty practice. And then for strategic reasons, it didn't really make sense for them to be in the loyalty business. So I was, again, another, you know, bit of good fortune, got to form our dialogue by doing a friendly deal to spin off this group that I had started at this other company. And really our mission was to, we recognized that most of the providers of loyalty marketing services were technology, were companies that were also in the technology business. Mm -hmm. And what I learned in that company because we had to, we got up, we, we, we had gotten invited into an RFP and we were competing against sort of the usual suspects in the industry for the business. And our point of difference was we didn't have technology. So we, we decided to, to flip that into an advantage for us, which was to take this fiercely technology independent approach to developing loyalty strategy, as opposed to designing a program to fit on you're on a platform, which is, and there's nothing wrong with that, especially because verticals need certain specialty pieces of, of technology to run. Um, and so there were easier, there, there are easier ways to create a loyalty program than to do it custom and independent of technology. But we saw that as a void in the marketplace. So that was, we were always this fiercely independent um, boutique firm working with with disproportionately large clients and and leading global brands but we were a tiny team mm -hmm. um, we were never more than 20 people and yet we were working with you know big iconic global brands and it was great but it was also limiting um, because we knew we didn't have the bench I always used to use the the analogy of uh, the Pepsi uh, the Pizza Hut three on three basketball tournament Right there, I think they still run it. Like you, like you, me, and another guy could form a three on a, a team and play in this tournament, and you you ultimately play, and you can you know you can win the whole thing, which is very different. The whole thing, believe me, I stink. But go ahead. <laughs> and I'm only five seven, so um, but I sound. I'm maybe hopefully I sound taller on a podcast. Um, but we, we always use the analogy that we could we could win the three on three tournament, but we didn't have the the twelve person roster. To, to compete in the NBA. Like we were the best three, three people, literally, not literally, but, but we, wanted, we wanted to have the breadth and depth to be able to scale, to do more work for our clients, which they wanted us to do, but we just simply couldn't do it. And that's really what led us to bond. And Bob McDonald, the CEO, and I had gotten introduced a few years, uh, a few years ago. And they really, we, were, we, we share a very uh, like-minded view of, of the loyalty and, and customer engagement and customer experience world. So, you know, February of 2020 was an odd time uh, to complete a merger, to close a merger, um, you know, literally like four weeks and change before, you know, the lockdown or whatever we, whatever we call this year. But uh, 
it, it so far so good. Good. And so you're now you're doing a bit, uh, strategic partnerships for Bond, but is it still you're doing your own little team, or is it now for the whole the whole gamut? It ultimately, like my my role, I mean, we our team still we're we're essentially you know Bond US, um, but very much integrated with. Uh, the the entirety of the company. So we're, you know, the client, our our existing clients are still managed and 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 work with the same people. But now we have other 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 in house capabilities that we didn't have before, like research and technology services and digital marketing and you know customer experience and all kinds of other things that. We're increasingly getting to do uh, work with, you know, with our clients in those areas. So it's, it's the thesis has held and, and it's, it's held with our existing clients and, you know, new business has been, um, obviously, it's always a priority, uh, but it's, it's really fun to be able to go and go to market being part of a much, much larger, more capable team. Yeah. So they have technology covered, meaning they, they have their own technological solution for loyalty. So we have, we have, we have technology services. We do have some technology products and, and platforms, but, and this was an important aspect of the merger for me is bond has, it was, was sort of the outlier, at least from our perspective. And, and, and we've put, we've seen it in practice now that we're part of the company in being able to provide a technology solution, but at the same time recognizing that for whatever reason, whether it's because we don't have the right or best solution to fit a client need, or a client's already got, uh, you know, has already invested in a marketing technology stack, or we need something specialized that we don't do, don't have developed in house it's really the best of both worlds. So we still run technology RFPs for clients. We, we also, uh, for some clients provide those, those capabilities ourselves and, you know, intellectually. And I think the way at least we look at loyalty strategy is, um, you know, there isn't the perfect, one size fits all platform that's going to work in every size business across geographic borders and regions of the world, um, much less across different vertical industries. Yeah. So, you know, airlines and restaurants have completely different technology needs. Right. Um, and, and so it's, 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 it's the best of both worlds for us and for our clients. So let me ask you this then as a marketing professional, Still, you've been in the business, obviously, quite a while. Uh, what can you share with us about pain points that you have when it comes to creating and maintaining customer loyalty? So from, from a perspective of saying, okay, uh, Mr. Customer, here's what we think you need to do. And they either give you pushback or say, we can't do that or do this. And again, if you can have a story without naming names, it's not that important that you name a name, but a story that might resonate with, so our listeners are in the mindset of their loyalty platform providers, loyalty solution uh, technology people, or just the marketing aspect of it, of running loyalty programs within their business, small to medium-sized businesses, and even enterprise businesses. So some stories that you might be able to share 
uh, about the pain points when it comes to dealing with and maintaining customer loyalty? Well, I mean, certainly technology is is a pain point, even even the best situation, um, especially if you don't have the right technology. And and you know, the the by extension, the pain point is really having you know, marketers having access not only to data, but to insights that are actionable. And, and especially today, given what Amazon has done to the world and to consumer expectations over the last, you know, couple of dozen years, expectations are really high in terms of consumers expect brands to show them that they know them. Um, so that's absolutely a pain point. You know, the other pain point is, you know, in a world where, digital advertising and and especially paid social media as a form of advertising it is is where where those those areas are so pervasive inside of marketing budgets and it, you know traditionally it was big budget brand advertising you know supported by you know things like network television i mean that's going back a ways you know you're competing for for resources, if you're working inside of an organization, you're competing for marketing resources with the advertising team, the social team, the PR team, content, who you know, whoever, right? And people get advertising, people get social, people don't fully understand data-driven customer marketing, and and so you've got you've got challenges, you've got headwinds inside the marketing group, number one, but then you also probably at a C level or at a board level, they've got other competing priorities at a business strategy level. So, so you've got to, you know, the best solution is when you've got a board of directors and a C level commitment that says the customer is one of our top three or top five priorities, not in terms of marketing, in terms of the business, right? That's, that's a huge, you know, when, when you have that kind of support, anything that more things that you want to have happen will happen. Uh, and if you don't, then you're, you're, you're just fighting those headwinds the whole way, the whole way through. So you've got, you've got data challenges, you've got organizational priorities, and then you've got to measure it. And, you know, the, the, the best thing you can do, I mean, I have a CEO once, um, and this quote sticks with me, you know, decades later, he said, look, if the answer is not money, rephrase the question, which is another way of saying that, you know, notwithstanding the conference board talking about stakeholder capitalism as more important than shareholder capitalism, um, topic for a different debate, when you can show to your boss, your, your, your CEO, your board, that you're able to drive profitable growth and ROI on the resources that you're given, it's an easier battle with the whatever other group that you're competing with internally for those resources. And then obviously the, the market, the customer marketplace is a whole nother set of challenges. And that is how do you be relevant? How do you build a brand, not just a not just a loyalty program? Loyalty program should create loyalty to the brand, right. not just to the program, because too many of the programs are interchangeable. So the difference becomes the brand and how good are you as an organization of using that data for marketing, but also for frontline service people, whether it's face-to-face -face or, you know, behind, you know, a digital app or digital chat. Yeah. You know, I think of brands as sort of uh, how people interact with a brand on an emotional level. 
So I don't drink coffee, but I know that coffee aficionados say Starbucks is great coffee, or they just like to belong to that group that thinks Starbucks is the best brand of coffee. Now, there's another group of people that think Dunkin' Donuts makes the best coffee or 7-Eleven makes the best coffee, and they're loyalists to that brand because of their relationship with the product or service that they have. But it's, it's almost commoditized in the sense that, to me, coffee is coffee because I'm not a coffee drinker. But I, I look at it as, let's say, beer. All right. I like beer, certain kinds of beer. So there's beers I will drink and then beers, if that's the only thing on the menu, I won't have it. Right. So, but I'm not, I wouldn't say, you know, super emotionally connected to it, but that's a taste. So I don't know if it's interesting because it means different things to different people. You know, I fly Southwest Airlines because of convenience, right? It's here at West Palm Beach. I can get pretty much anywhere I need to go. Uh, and it's, it's simple. It's easy. It's, and their reward program is also very convenient. I, I, I can put points back in. So like, you know, during COVID we had purchased tickets to go to Las Vegas and then the trip got canceled. So we put the, uh, miles back in the rapid rewards miles back into the account. They didn't charge us to move points around or anything like that to change. It's just, it's easy when it comes to that. So what, I want. I know you wanted to mention something. Go. Well, no. I just like the thing about Southwest is, like the brand experience is iconic, right? Like you know, you, you can you can be blindfolded, and even if they didn't say Southwest, you would know from their person the personality and that experience that it's it's uniquely Southwest. So, um, no, I just I I think they're a great example. Yeah. And I was listening to a book, uh, I forget which one it was, Made to Stick, it might have been, but they were talking about their message is we are the low fare airline. They want to be known as a low fare airline. And a, um, a flight attendant made a suggestion to one of the marketing people saying, you know, we'd like to be able to serve a chicken sandwich on the flight from um, Dallas to L.A., and they said, will that make us the low fare airline? And she's like, no, I guess not, you know, because then it's going to increase the cost and then the cleaning and all this stuff. So they are the no frills. But it, again, I, I love the brand for the convenience of it and the, the simplicity of, you know, I, I pay $150 for a flight change on American Airlines. I'm thinking I'm going to use the ticket again anyway. Why am I paying another $150 for a ticket that I already bought? You know, it's frustrating. Well, I mean, look at look at all the profits that the airline industry made pre-COVID, and how much of those profits, as, as an industry, were driven by change fees. Yeah. You know, and, and you think about, you know, and this is also where like it's not just the loyalty program, it's not just the the experience, but you think about like all the advertising uh, that Southwest did, especially on Sundays during NFL games, about you're now free to move about the country, right? I mean, they reinforce that proposition um, on a number of different levels really, you know, in a really smart way. Yeah, they did a great job with that. So like in the, in the loyalty space related to travel, let's say, what's your take on the extension of that brand into other, I don't want to say verticals, but other relationships that they have? So for example, with Southwest, they have the Rapid Rewards Online Mall. So now I can go and shop at Walmart, Kmart, Home Depot, Best Buy online and earn more rapid rewards, regardless of the payment method that I use. I don't need to use my Southwest Rewards credit card, but anything that I buy online, I get more miles. 
What's your take on those? So they they exist for a reason, right? Because you because instead of those merchants paying affiliate fees, they're essentially paying the airline to issue miles to you for that shopping. Yeah. Which is really smart from a purely financial standpoint of how do you create, you know, especially in a low cost airline, how do you offset the cost of running a frequent flyer program in addition to driving incremental, you know, core revenue, right? So it's, it's ancillary, you know, think categorizes ancillary revenue. And I think there's, there, and, and more broadly, you can think about that as partnerships and partnership strategy and partnership marketing. Right. which is super critical. That was the example he's like first day on the job at Midway Airlines in 1989. I get a stack of folders with partnership agreements because this is how you create a more rounded value proposition to offer members. The struggle I have with it, with the way it's done, especially in the airlines, and I, you know, I could call out certain partnership categories as being completely commoditized. And other than creating... And a transactional benefit, incremental mileage accrual, especially if you're shopping in a merchant that you're already doing business with. Yes, you're, you're accruing miles, so it's good for you. Is it good for that merchant to pay a premium for business that they were getting anyway? So is it dilutive for them? And, and, and then you also need to factor in, and this isn't a comment, good or bad, it's just sort of calling out both the challenge and the opportunity for the airline, is that the best place to get you, Rob, to go do business as a result of the affinity and loyalty you have to Southwest Airlines? Or might there be another category that that might even be more on brand for Southwest than doing the same thing that everybody else is doing and doing a, a the deal with a with a shopping company, or is there a way to inject something that that feels more uniquely Southwest into that shopping experience? I think that's that's the challenge. Now, the flip side is the economics of those deals are great, and that's why you see them. That's why everybody has a shopping mall. That's why everybody does business with E Rewards, um, you know, which has been around for a long time, and. You know, you see periodically, you know, one of the one of the car rental companies, this happened to me actually at Midway, one of the car rental companies says, you know what, that's it. We're getting out of the we're getting out of the 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 airline partnership game. And half the time they don't go through with it, half the time their competitors go for the head fake, they pull out, and the one who, who sort of gave the head fake in the first place changes their mind. So it's it's kind of fun to just watch that as an observer. But I think the, the the real point I'm making is there's still an underdeveloped partnership opportunity across a lot of different loyalty programs. And I think one of the things that we see in COVID, you know, as a result of COVID is how connected different categories are that sort of lead to this notion. We do a lot of work around this, like the idea of a connected customer experience, Right. It's the associate, you know, if you think back to sort of fundamental math, which might be, you know, not everybody's good at remembers fundamental math, but like the associative property, right? A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C. Mm -hmm. If I'm loyal to Delta Airlines and Delta has a partnership with, and we actually did this deal 
the first deal we did this years ago when I was working with the Lisa Group, we did a partnership deal with Charles Schwab. And it was the first airline brokerage industry partnership. And it was incredible, like all the data supported it. And it was incredibly successful for a period of time. But for Schwab, it was an acquisition deal. Um, and they, you know, they got to a point and they're like, okay, we've mined, you know, we've sort of mined this database as best we could. And that's it. And we're going to, we're going to pull out. But I, I think sort of, you know, uh, the, the converse of that is the relationship we, we, with like a Delta and an American Express, which has been going on. That was literally Delta's first co-brand credit card. They were the last major carrier to, 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 to launch a co-brand credit card. But that relationship is incredibly strategic. American Express was, you know, provided financing when Delta was in bankruptcy years ago. And, and, and you see, you know, a, a company like American Express, especially this year, stepping up and not only providing, you know, powerful backing, which is sort of their tagline and emblematic of their brand strategy, but also a brand loyalty strategy, right? They're saying American Express, the blue box is loyal, you know, is that powerful backing means they're loyal to you as the card member. It also means they're loyal to their, their merchant customers. And of course they have to be because they charge, you know, they're, they're the opposite of the Southwest in the category. They're the, the most expensive way to transact. But, you know, the, the, well, the reality is they, you pay as a merchant, you pay a higher fee yeah. for that, but you get a better customer and that customer is going to spend more with you than, than from another network. Well, that's true. I mean, I'm, I'm a perfect uh, case study when it comes to that. I put everything on my American Express. I have two of them, one for my personal, one for my business. And it's a uh, quick story. Um, you know, I apologize to the listeners that have heard this probably four or five times on previous episodes. But I had uh, a situation where I had a swimming pool in the house in New York, and we opened it up one year, and it was green. And I contacted the company that originally put the pool in, and I said, I need you to come and uh, clean the pool up. Um, and he said, all right, it's going to cost uh, $1,200. And I said, all right, well, it's a lot of money, but whatever. Um, he comes, they take the cover off, they put the swimming pool, I mean, the slide in and stuff like that. Anyway, long story short is it's still green when he's done. And I'm thinking, well, that, that defeats the purpose. I could have just put the, put the, uh, the, took the cover off. So I said, I'm not paying you $1,200. I'll give you $300, which is what it would cost to take the cover off and put the, put the diving board on. And the, and the So he hemmed and hawed and bitched and complained. And long story short is uh, I called American Express. I said, listen, I'm willing to pay the guy the $320 or whatever it was for the pool cover to come off. But I'm not paying the difference. They said, okay, Mr. Gallo, we'll pay the difference. They paid the difference, the other 800 and something dollars, because they had him, I guess, as a good customer in the merchant side of things, and me as a great customer on the uh, consumer side of things. And then they, after that, they sent my wife flowers from America. Wow. Yeah. That's so, a great story. I've been, I've been with them ever, this is since 87, uh, I've had my first car. I'm right there with you. I'm within a year of that. So, uh. Yeah, and and you know they're you know that they 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 you know they print the tenure on your card, member sense, mm -hmm. which gets into a whole other loyalty topic that we don't have time for today, yeah. which is you know this notion of membership and what that really means in yeah, terms of where loyalty. Big, it's a big part of it. People want to belong to groups. I mean, uh, Maslow's hierarchy. Everybody, 
probably listening to this understands that. But you know, we, we've gone way longer than than I normally go because sometimes the attention span, and I know myself personally, it, it wanes at uh, 20, 25 minutes. But we're into probably minute number forty. So before we wrap up, what sort of actionable advice, Phil, could you give uh, our listeners that they can implement today to help them attract and retain more customers? The most, the, 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 the best advice I have is really how we define what loyalty marketing is. And that is, we define loyalty marketing as paying attention to customers and treating them accordingly. So if you take that as an action, which is to say, it, I, 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 it, I, if I pay attention to my customers and I act on what I see them doing, what I learn from paying attention to them, I can make their world better and that's going to make my business better. Um, and it, it's a simple idea. It can be, it can be deployed simply. It can be deployed with, you know, artificial intelligence and everything in between. And that's the beauty of it. It's also something that if you're, if you've got frontline people, if you instill that in them, pay attention to the customers, you know, be sensitive to, to what they're doing in their needs and, uh, and, and good things will happen. Yeah, I agree. Simplicity, empathy, beyond is is goes above and beyond. You know, yeah. understand where they're coming from. Don't necessarily sympathize, but empathize with their situation. Put yourself in their shoes. Great stuff. I know. Again, we can go on tangents and talk all day, Phil, uh, about customer loyalty, brand loyalty. Uh, but if listeners want to get a hold of you for more information, what's the best way they could do that? Phil dot Rubin R U B I N at bondbrandloyalty.com. Great. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, before we wrap up, is there any other things that we think we missed? No, I think we, we, all, we, we need to just be mindful of the calendar and wish everybody a great holiday in 2021 because it can only get better from here. Absolutely. All right. I want to thank our listeners for being loyal to the show and investing some of their valuable time with us. If you feel we received value from the show, we would definitely appreciate a five-star review on your favorite podcast streaming service. If you know someone who might receive value from listening to the podcast, please do share. That's how we grow. To reference this and other Loyalty Minute episodes, please visit theloyaltyminute.com. Enjoy. Thanks, Phil. Thank you, Rob. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in tomorrow for your next edition of the Loyalty Minute.